Hello there, and welcome to another episode of Neuroresiliency, the show where I share passion for the world. One of the things that people usually say to me is that, Justin, you have such a positive point of view. You're always engaged in the things that uh, are really interesting and make me filled with hope and perspective and blah, 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 blah. I do get a lot of that. And the reason why is because I flex uh, my curiosity muscle a lot. A lot. And thankfully, I've got the opportunity to do it as well. You know, some people might naturally flex curiosity, but they don't have the opportunity because they're busy, busy with their daily lives and things like that. So for me, what have I been flexing my curiosity muscle around recently? There have been a couple of things. And where where I can, I will add the notes below. But so fascinating for me. So one of the regions and reasons that I feel very positive is like... I see the same things that everyone else sees. You know, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. You know, we're blowing up the world with, you know, our the way that we use resources. If you believe in climate crisis or not, you know, you can still see that um, we're utilizing resources of the world like fossil fuels and things like that, and it's not sustainable. So sustainability becomes a bit of an issue. Um, so how how is it that I don't feel... Like, this is a bad thing. How is it that I don't feel uh, put down by these different perspectives and views? Why do I still keep a positive frame of mind for all of these? Well, it's very simple. Number one is that you can look at things through a very simple lens, which is innovation. You know, innovation comes in with necessity. So I don't know if, you've know, if you know this phrase, necessity is the mother of invention. And so if there's not a problem, people don't fix things. They don't think long enough down the line to fix the problem. So systems thinking is thinking what are going to be the effects down the road. But even with systems thinking, there's a limited frame reference. We can't imagine what the world would look like in 400 years' time and so design systems that are going to work for that. But we can think, let's say, 10 years down the line and think for systems down there. So one of these has got to do with natural resources and how we are going to change the world with our utilization of energy. Where are we getting our energy from? So the first thing that I've, I've paid attention to is going to be called um, the passive house movement, which is the utilization of things that don't require any energy to govern your house. So most people would see housing design and then say, how can we um, use sustainable energy generation techniques like solar or wind or whatever? Fine, that's that's a good way to do it. But a better way to do it is just adding an element of design so that we don't even need power. A great way to do this is um, you could think of these, these types of skylights that actually have mirrored surfaces that go from the ceiling all the way to the outside of the roof. And there's a bubble on the, the roof as well. So when there is light, that light, number one, the bubble is usually like glass or perspex or something like that, which is going to reflect refract the light in such a way that it's going to actually intensify the light, number one. And then number two is the mirrored surface of the tube all the way from the top to the bottom is actually going to create um, an intensification of that light as well. And so we're not going to lose light. And as a result of that, we can light our homes for as much as there is light outside. And then it's a simple matter of like, okay, cool. I don't want this anymore. So I pull, uh, I push a button or I pull a lever that closes the vent, which means that, um, you know, there is no more light coming in. 
So you could think about this shutter system almost like you've got on the houses of Europe where you, you've got like storm shutters that you just close and like zero light gets in as well. So that's quite an interesting idea about a passive house and light. Uh, but what about energy? So AC or air conditioning is one of like the greatest drains on what we do. Well, there's also a passive solution to that, which is the ventilation that comes in through the earth. And so uh, by including ventilation aspects that allow cold air, you know, air that's close to the ground to then move in, go through earth that's underneath the house and then to come out through the top of the house, for example, um, that that natural idea of how we design a building to then bring air in and move air out as well. So that's just one idea of it. And proper ventilation just means the proper controlling of temperature with air as well. So that it doesn't matter if we have a hot day outside or a cold day outside, our health can actually maintain a stable temperature. And I'm very excited about some of the designs that I found about that, that I didn't even knew existed because I was like, how would people have lived with the temperatures that I'm experiencing? So just for a frame of reference, I grew up in an environment in Africa where we were on what's called the escarpment, which is uh, 1,600 meters above sea level. So we're quite high up. So we didn't really experience intense um, summer days and intense winter days. We, we were we were pretty high up. So I think the most the the most extreme temperature was about 31 degrees. Celsius to 33 degrees Celsius was considered really, really hot. And that's what I grew up with. And that's sitting around the 90s, mid to high 90s Fahrenheit, I think. And now what I'm experiencing down here in the south of Texas is like 44 degrees for the last two months was the normal. And 44 degrees Celsius is like 110, 109 Fahrenheit. It was ridiculous. And I was thinking, how can people live like this? But you know, there's various ways of living with that as well and managing temperatures. And I think, you know, by saying that, oh, we got to get rid of fossil fuels. Well, no, fossil fuels are allowing us to live right now. But being aware of fossil fuels running down and the impact that fossil fuels are having on the environment, it makes other solutions a lot more attractive. And to what degree would design come into this where we stop using fossil fuels to then cool our houses because we can cool our houses by just designing our houses differently or adapting our houses so passively it takes care of itself. So that's one of the things that I'm really excited about. And it's really interesting to see the effects of like passive housing and then asking questions like that of how could we design something so that we don't actually need energy to power something. That's always very interesting for me. One of my friends introduced me to this as well. So the second area that I'm very excited about is always space. And you think about the impacts of the planet, the climate crisis, et cetera. We're going through resources and issues with resources and rare precious minerals. And something that I learned is that China has pretty much cornered the market on its rare and precious earth materials. Not just the fact that they're, they have an abundance of them, but they know how to process them better than anyone else in the world because of the damage that it does to the environment. You know, there's also a lot of Chinese regulations that allow companies to mine and process these things and do damage to the environment because they don't care about the pollution. You know, and that's why, like, you know, a lot of the times countries that ha will have these rare precious minerals won't actually extract them because of the damage done to the environment. 
So looking at it from that perspective, um, we can see, um, <laughs> you know, space as an option here as well. And this is what I'm quite excited for. And we've seen a lot of developments and advancements in the technologies of going to space and doing things in space and bringing space down to earth as well. So, you know, we're talking about SpaceX being one of many um, companies that are actually making movements here. And part of this is because whatever processing is a highly polluting process that we can find here on earth that destabilizes the environment, imagine an affordable way of doing this in space. I'm not even saying in low Earth orbit, we can even say on the moon or on Mars or whatever. So we start a supply chain. Now, obviously, we're not near to this, but this is what I could see for the future as a solution as well, so that we stop doing things, stop the processing plants and stop all the things that add value to us being down here in places where it would highly pollute and highly contaminate our environments. So we can allow the environment to regrow and you know reverse a lot of uh, the crises that we're currently seeing and stabilize, um, you know, Earth's weather a little bit more or whatever. Now, part of that is also going to be space mining, space mining. And this is where we get into another thing. So space mining is something that is estimated at being a trillion dollar industry because we can't really put um, a price tag on it. It's going to be something that is going to cost a lot of money initially to go up there to mine uh, minerals from different parts of space. Now, the easiest thing to say here is like, what are you talking about, Justin? Well, there's a lot of asteroids that are up there that are just floating around. And a lot of these asteroids have got rare, precious minerals on them. Now, one of the things to talk about is that, yes, there are rare, precious minerals that we can get from Earth that are in the formation of like the Earth's crusts and things like that. But one of the minerals that we don't talk about is gold. I only learned this recently as well. Gold isn't from Earth. Gold is usually made, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, if you're um, an astrophysicist out there, that uh, gold is actually made in the extreme states of uh, basically dying stars. You know, when we get... Um, the collapse of a star becomes um, a supernova. Then we get this hypergravity, which condenses molecules, which actually, if you look at a, uh, the molecule of gold, an atom of gold, it's highly condensed. And it can only happen in those environments. And then when it explodes, when we get those kinds of explosions, you know, it goes supernova, um, it sends those molecules out throughout um, space. And then basically we'll get um, Earth, Earth's orbit will attract things that are traveling through space. They, you know, they will come into our atmosphere. And so we can see landing zones basically of gold. And that's why like gold, we can't just dig and find it. We have to be at the sites of where it landed. So it's almost like, you know, if you watch the beginning of uh, Black Panther, you know, where vibranium was in space and it landed in Wakanda. And they, they're they just basically sitting on the biggest deposit of vibranium in the world because it was from a meteorite. So gold is literally that element as well. And there's tons of gold that landed in different places, but the richest earth environment for gold is probably going to be the ocean because remember, like most of the earth is covered in oceans as well. So this was 
first of all, this blew my mind that gold is developed out in space in the heart of dying stars, and that's incredible. Second of which is that there are so many things in space that are sitting up there with rare minerals that we can mine instead of mining our own earth. And the mining process um, does a lot of damage to um, environments. But then on top of that, the processing and the refining of these minerals also does a lot of damage. And just defaulting all of this to space, ultimately, like, what environment are we going to pollute if we are up on the moon where there there isn't necessarily an ecosystem to, to harm? There isn't. And so we could literally produce mountains of toxic waste on the moon and it having little to no effect on you know the next 200, 300 years. So what does that look like to then start putting, let's say, radioactive nuclear waste on the moon? You know, the storage of nuclear waste here is already something that um, a lot of people have got solutions for, but it requires a certain amount of space or the energy. Now, what would it look like sending it into space? Um, and so that's what my friends and I were talking about, this idea of space becoming the manufacturing hub and Earth becomes the living hub. And that's also something that's super exciting. And it's a solution that creates a different environment for us on Earth that doesn't risk us and it could create a much healthier future for everyone on Earth. Because right now, we outsource and we put the unhealthy stuff in countries that um, is going to trade it and be like, oh, we're, we're okay to take your unhealthy stuff if you pay us money for it. And we don't want that. We don't want to because ultimately we are in symbiosis and we all see these things together. So that's another thing is to talk about like, how do we power things? What do we do with the waste? Um, where are we actually mining? And think about how many problems that would solve in and of itself. That blows my mind incredibly you know i can't I, I still i can't communicate with you how much that that excites me to think about these kinds of possibilities and options and to think about things like propulsion through space as well where there's um you know a, a thing that's being developed i think it's at one of the universities in the us where propulsion small space propulsion based on solar energy that it collects and so it can ultimately you know, power itself indefinitely as long as its solar panels are, um, you know, clean and able to generate power. It can continually go, you know, perpetually, shall we say. So these are the things that really, you know, make me excited. And on top of that, we're also getting to a space culturally where we are seeing different things. Now, I might make, a, make an episode that dives deeper into this, but I have a, I had a conversation, a really great conversation recently on culture and the evolution of culture. And I am a huge believer in um, you know, cultural beliefs and traditions changing over time to better suit the environment. So if you think about like the Japanese uh, code of the samurai and honor and things like that, and how much that actually influences Japanese society today but actually how much has been abandoned because it doesn't suit society as well. So there's always an influence, but we'll also see how much of it has been abandoned. It has been noted down. It has a place in history where it is studied and it is honored, but we don't need to keep living that code today. And that's important. So we literally note, we take notes of cultural things that exist today, but abandon the ones that don't work because they don't work and they won't allow for the best adaptation and the best advancement of the human race.
And so I'm excited by that as well to see an adaptability in cultures. So that's huge. So you don't see like Japanese people running around or people who believe in the code of the Samurai running around and like committing like honorable suicide to regain honor of their, like their group with their clan, their family, whatever it is. You don't see that anymore. Well, why? Well, because it didn't actually do anything for the advancement of society as a whole. It didn't, you know, it meant these people lived as honorable people, but how would we know if it's honor versus just a cultural upbringing, a belief system, a tradition? So I do highly believe in adaptability, adaptation. This is huge. So that's that's a big point for me, I think. And that also makes me excited to see the adaptability of people. We talk about globalization, and this also excites me. Now, many might argue that globalization is dead. Regarding trade, resources, things like that, diplomacy, sure, I could see how we're entering a new phase. But still, we are at the point of the world where we have the most exposure to other people's cultures than ever before. Social media means that it's not just a curated form of culture, but literally you can see a person's point of view every single day from everywhere around the world, depending on what social media we pay attention to. We can literally see what's going on in the streets. We can see what's going on in people's lives. And that gives us that global feeling, that connectability. Now, that comes with its own consequences as well, where people will only want to show what's the great stuff, not the bad stuff about living in those environments. And we can create a kind of coveting of other people's uh, states of being. Like if you see someone's life in Colorado and they're only showing you like the glorious outdoors that they live with, of course, you're going to be like, oh, I wish I was in Colorado. This person, I, I always feel like my my landscape isn't good enough and I can't wait to move there. What they don't show you is also what they have to put up with because of living in Colorado. Like what, what are the cons of living in Colorado? The pros and the cons, you know, and what you have to trade. Everything has a price. And sure, it might not be a con for you right now, but once you've lived there for a while and that's your frame of reference, what does that mean to you as well? So all in all, there are exciting things about the world. There are exciting things going on. And what do you choose to pay attention to? Do you choose to pay attention to how globalization is breaking down because there's trade wars and embargoes and sanctions and all that kind of stuff? Or do you choose to pay attention to how connected we are and how we're enriched by being disconnected? Do you choose to pay attention to how social media is ruining people's lives or how social media connects people with similar interests and hobbies. Like I only go on social media to look at dogs or to look at, you know, Brazilian jiu-jitsu videos that are funny or, you know, people sharing education. Social media is a great place for education to see little quick things that people um, do, you know, business, uh, exercise, stretching, nutrition. It's interesting. And it's also interesting to see how much nonsense there is out there, but it always starts a debate, which is great in my opinion. Are you paying attention to uh, climate crisis, you know, land grabs, resources, and things like that, and how sustainable or not sustainable certain practices are? Or are you focusing on like, well, what does the future look like for this type of thing as well? You know, where is it going that is actually strong and not just, can we, can we go back to uh, a primal way of living and living off the land and, oh, we've got too many people and we need to cut cut these things out. And I think that, um, that speaks to something that I'm looking forward to in my life, which is uh, we've got just enough space to start gardening our own vegetables as well. And looking at 
things that can actually <clears throat> bring you a connection with nature is growing your own food, your own vegetables, your own things, and then also preserving them. And what does that look like to have like a sustainability around that as well? So I'm looking forward to growing my own potatoes. So I hope that this has given you some kind of excitement, some kind of insight into um, a way that we can look at anything in the world and be excited because we can see possibility and where the future is going to lead us. And remembering that two people being exposed to the same information, one person is going to be incredibly negative and the other can be extremely positive. And it depends on your frame of reference, your perspective, and what is it that you see the world leading towards. All right. That's it for me. I hope that this has been an insightful and exciting episode for you. Let me know if you want to hear more of these. I'm very happy to make them because I am exposed to very interesting information on a regular basis. I laugh my ass off. I think it's very, very interesting to stay in touch with the world and not just numb yourself out and try and distract yourself with happiness, but rather integrate what's happening in the world into your happiness as well. And that is what neuroresiliency is all about. That's it for me. I'll see you in the next one. Ciao for now.